Hi, and welcome to Drawing Inspiration. I am your host, Mike Hendley. Episode 58, Discovering Something Special with Nature Journaling. Welcome, everyone. As always, this podcast has been brought to you by listeners, patrons, and friends. I hope you're doing well. I am ramping up for some interviews over the coming, uh, I guess, uh, six or seven episodes, uh, but I thought I would put one out just talking about what I've been doing recently and exploring nature journaling. So so I've had quite a few questions on this, so I thought it would be uh, kind of fun to do a, an episode about what I'm doing with nature journaling, the tools I'm using, how I'm setting up, and the experiences I've had in doing it with the hope that maybe some of you out there would consider doing this as a way to, you know, try new things, expand your art, or get into it for the first time. So if we go back a little bit, you know, my first kind of exposure with nature journaling was through uh, Joe Brown, who goes as um, at Bernoid on Twitter, and uh, she's also on Instagram with something like 30,000 followers. I've had her on twice, so I had her on episode 13 and episode 40, and I will include links to those in the show notes. And we talked about the kind of work she's done with ink. Uh, in actually using ink from uh, mushrooms to do some of her work, which just blew me away. And uh, she released a book, um, Secrets of a Devon Wood, and it is really her sketchbook in a way that you can flip through it as a hardcover book, but at the back, there's some room for you to actually add your own kind of drawings and renderings. And I've always been kind of taken with, with Joe Brown's work and I found it kind of falling in line with what I'm interested in doing. That is, you know, looking at nature and trying to to find those textures and those stories. And I I really like the idea of being able to document nature and document kind of the world around me, uh, wherever I may be. Uh, It could be that it's in my own backyard. It could be from uh, travels out east to the ocean and where, you know, everything is much different, different animals, different textures. And the thing I really like about kind of the nature journaling is that you can do it anywhere. You know, you don't have to be in the field doing this. You can do it in your office, in your living room. Uh, You can gather the information you need. You could do a rough sketch, bring it back and uh, finish it. And you could do it, you know, years later. It doesn't really matter. There's no wrong way to do this. And I've really kind of looked back, like I've got, I'm going to say like 40 or 50,000 photos. It may be more, I don't remember. But I'm looking back at all these photos because I used to take so many pictures of butterflies and moths and turtles and just nature overall. And that's the basis for a lot of the work that I do. If I don't find what I'm looking for, I will tend to go to places like Unsplash or Pixabay and pull images from there because they're copyright free. I try and attribute the photographer if I can find them easily. Uh, There are Facebook groups as well where photographers will post their work and you're free to use it. Uh, They ask for some kind of attribution or identification when you do that. I did that with the Puffin, for example. So obviously I don't have puffins where I live in Ottawa, Canada, but I was able to use a photograph from a um, an individual in England. And so what I did is I did a, a puffin in graphite and I sent him a copy. I had asked if I could do that 
and I sent him a print of that uh, when I was done. Um, so, you know, photographers are always a great resource when you're trying to get those reference materials. You know, you don't have to get it perfect, but for me, nature journaling is telling a story that's reasonably accurate. I don't want to draw a monarch and have it look like a swallowtail or have a swallowtail look like a cercropia moth. Like, I want to make sure that I get it fairly correct. And it is amazing when you start posting this to areas like Reddit and Facebook, how people can come in and identify not only, you know, are you accurate, but what what the sex is of that insect, for example, that you're doing, or at what stage is, is it at. And um, so I'm, I really respect that community for, for wanting to get that right. And I really enjoy doing it and trying to get it right. So it's not necessarily that I'm trying to do photorealistic. I'm just trying to do something that's accurate with regard to uh, the markings and the size and the proportions and things like that. So that's what I'm going to be talking about as I go through this. So the first thing I'm going to talk about are the tools that I'm using. So maybe let's start with the paper. So I ordered, and I've talked about this in a previous episode, I ordered some sketchbooks from Etcher. And it's spelled E-T-C-H-R. I will include a link to that in the show notes. And I bought some hot and cold press sketchbooks from them. And so I've been trying watercolor, I've been trying colored pencil. I'll get into that detail a little bit. The cold press paper, which is the more rough of the two, um, has a really kind of really deep tooth on it. It really accepts watercolor wonderfully. Um, it, it just sinks into the paper. It doesn't warp or bend. Uh, it is incredible for that. And for ink, if you like that kind of scratchiness when you're uh, you know, throwing down some ink and then coming in with a wash of watercolor, it is great for that. The hot press, as in normal hot press paper, uh, will accept the watercolor. These are very heavyweight papers. But the, the paint tends to sit on top. And while that works out, and I've, I have used it, it's not ideal as it would be, for example, with the cold press. It still doesn't buckle. Um, it performs beautifully. But uh, the hot press, I really kind of reserve for uh, doing the colored pencil. I've done some watercolor on it, and it works out beautifully. And I, I will do more uh, because I can't keep changing pads <laughs> going from the hot to the cold press. You know, with the hot press, I can do everything. I can do my ink uh, without the scratchiness, which is kind of how I like it. I can do the watercolor if I am patient with allowing it to rest above the paper and eventually fall into the uh, to the fibers. And I can also do colored pencil. So for me, that hot press, I think, is the ideal paper for me to cover it all. Now, that being said, I am going to be using the cold press for some dedicated uh, ink and watercolor work that I'm going to be doing in the future. So it's not going to be my nature journal, but it will be something I use out in the field uh, when I'm trying to render things like the cars I've been talking about doing, which I hope to in the next week or so. So, you know, that being said, you don't need a fancy sketchbook to do any of this. This is what I've chosen at this point. I've used moleskin. I like moleskin. Uh, books, but I wanted to do more watercolor, but I didn't necessarily want to commit to watercolor uh, paper. I do have a watercolor moleskin sketchbook, and it works wonderfully. 
but I was trying to think of a solution where I could kind of do it all. And this hot press book from Etcher does that. You know, you can buy those blocks of hot or cold press paper. I have brought those out in the field. You could use a single sheet. Uh, you could do your nature journaling in a sketchbook like uh, Joe Brown did with hers, uh, which she just bought off Amazon. And um, it turned out wonderful. She was able to date everything because it really was kind of a day-to-day journal. So don't feel like you will perform better on one paper than another. Just start with something simple. I would suggest that if you're going to be doing any watercolor, then you do need a heavier paper because you're going to be disappointed if you come in with a really lightweight paper and then drop some watercolor on it and it ends up ruining what's on the back side, for example, if you're doing it on both sides of the paper. So that's the only thing to be mindful of. But if you're doing if you're doing it with pastels or colored pencil or even just doing it in pencil, um, I think you're going to be fine with uh, whatever you can whatever you can find. As artists, we tend to collect art supplies. So I'm betting you probably have a sketchbook already that you could use to start doing this. So when it comes to the paint side of thing, so my choice right now is the Daniel Smith watercolor. So what I did is I bought a series of colors. Um, At some point, maybe I can tell you what those are, but, uh, you know, the typical kind of burnt umber and, and yellow ochre, you know, a couple of blues, a couple of reds, a couple of greens. And so what I've done is I've poured them into these half pans and I have them in a, a small steel container so that when I'm painting at home, I can just open up the case and paint away. It's got, uh, you know, mixing palettes on, on the inside of the lid. But when I go out in the field, I can use the same pan. And so the way I've kind of designed my my watercolor kit is I wanted something I could be that I could transport with me. And that's what I've been focused on. And so I would say that pouring your own pans works out great. I think that uh, I've changed my technique. So when I do pour it into a pan, uh, buying the tubes and pouring it into a pan, I will put a layer. I'll typically do at least two layers. So I'll half fill the pan, wait for that to dry, and then come back with another filling. Sometimes I will do three. And I'll just use a toothpick to kind of flatten it out. And that's a really great way to, to get the watercolor into, you know, these pans, these little kits that you can get on Amazon with the half pans already in them or the full pans. I went with half pans because I don't paint so much and I like to be able to have quite a few paint choices. Uh, As I'm starting out, I don't really know what I need. So this has allowed me to be a bit more flexible with that. The idea that you don't have to buy a complete kit provides that kind of flexibility. Now, there are some great ones out there. And you're not going to really go wrong with any of that, but I would spend the money on some decent watercolor paint if you're going to do watercolor, because I, I don't want you to be disappointed with the quality, because um, I've used the really cheap stuff, and I didn't really enjoy it, and I think that's what's taken me so long to get back to watercolor, is I finally found it with uh, the stuff that I'm using from Daniel Smith. Now, that being said, there are other, you know, there's a few other companies that are at this um, at this level of providing you know really high quality paint, so I'm not saying you have to get Daniel Smith, but uh, if you go into a dollar store and buy watercolor paint, it's probably going to be li- quite chalky and leave you a bit disappointed. So just be mindful of that. So I've got my palette, I've got my half pans in it. As a matter of brushes, what I've been using a lot are just the water brushes from Pentel. So these are brushes that have a nylon tip, and they've got a uh, 
a water reservoir that's part of the actual handle. I fill them with water and off I go. And then what I do is I wrap a bandana around my wrist. I double wrap it and that's where I dab the paint. Um, when I want to clean the brush, when I want to remove a bit of paint, that becomes my rag. Uh, so I don't have to be hanging a rag off of something. I can just use my wrist and um, especially if I go down the paddleboard and I'm, I'm holding a sketchbook and I'm holding the, the paint palette, I don't really have room for a whole lot else. So uh, having that bandana wrapped around my wrist works out really well in kind of keeping everything together. So I've also been using uh, some other brushes that are like travel brushes. And, um, you know, I, I do like, you know, kind of the short plein air brushes you can buy in most art stores. Uh, you, you get a basic watercolor brush and you can expand from there. But um, like I said, if you just get, you know, that little kit, and I'll include a link to it from Pantel with the water brushes, that'll serve you well. It means you don't have to carry like a container of water. You just need a way to wipe the brush between different colors. And uh, it's a bit harder to control the water with the water brushes uh, because it's you can't kind of put on thick paint always. It's always kind of trying to leak out. <laughs> But um, that's why I have the other brushes with me as well. But uh, you can get a lot done with just the plain water brushes. And a lot of the work I'll be talking about later, I, I did just with water brushes. So that kind of covers the paint. Now, if I decide I want to do paint over an ink wash, I'll just go with my typical uh, Food A Sailor pen with the Platinum Carbon ink. And the reason I use that is because it is a waterproof ink, which means I can lay it down. Sometimes I will come in with graphite pencil first and then lay down the ink and then put a wash on top. So that's the only thing I would consider is um, if I'm doing a uh, watercolor wash, I would use ink. And I don't use the microns, uh, the pigment microns or anything necessarily for that kind of stuff because I like the variance in the line that you get from a fountain pen. There is a brush pen that I use. Um, I think it's Kurataki make it and it has a permanent ink in there. That takes a little bit more control because it's a brush pen, but I do like using the uh, the Fude fountain pens, and there's a number out there that you can get, but the Fude tip is intended for calligraphy, and it has kind of a either a 45 or 50 degree angle, so it looks like it's bent, but it allows you to kind of achieve really thin lines, but if you rotate it and you lay it down closer to the paper at a more oblique angle, um, you can achieve a really nice wide Incline, which I think is incredible. So the other bit that I'll talk about is, so we've talked about the paper, we've talked about the paint and the ink. The other thing I've been playing with is colored pencil. And so I will do a sketch in pencil, and then I'll come at it with colored pencil. So my favorite colored pencil right now is the Faber-Castell Polychromos. And I'm trying to limit myself. I've got the, the 120 pencil kit. It was on special near Christmas, so I bought it. But I'm trying to, when I start a piece, I kind of pull out the pencils I need for that piece. And I try and kind of contain my palette a little bit, because you can blend a little bit as you're laying it down. So I'm always using a white, I'm always using a black um, to help kind of temper things out. And depending on what I'm planning, I may lay down one over the other. But uh, it's almost similar to watercolor, where you're going light to dark as you start applying. So you want to get those light colors in first, and then come in with a darker and then at the end, I can throw in some shadows and things like that. I've used the Prismacolor Premiere before. I'm not a big fan. I found I was getting broken leads. 
you know, a lot of people really like the Prismacolor. You know, there's Caran d'Ache, which make a wonderful colored pencil as well. They're harder to get where I'm located. So for me, the Faber-Castell Polychromos has been incredible. So just a point on whether you're considering colored pencil, you can get smaller uh, Faber-Castell kits. And so if you just want to try that out, you can just buy a few single pencils and, and, and start with that. But I would, you know, if you're, if you're struggling with a particular tool, just think about a different variation of that tool and don't just give up on it. Uh, and that's what I did with the Prismacolor. I was, it just wasn't working for me. And then when I came back to the Polychromos, now this is also the fact that, you know, I was, I'd been drawing for some period of time between moving from the, the, uh, moving from the Prismacolor to the Faber-Castell. So I learned a lot as a matter of drawing, but uh, I, I tried the Prismacolor Premiere again, and it is uh, a huge difference for me. So I really love Faber-Castell. So I haven't been doing a lot of blending with the liquid I bought, which is kind of a solvent. It's called Zested, I think it is, and you can apply it with a brush and it helps to blend. I haven't done that a whole lot in a sketchbook because I'm trying to be fairly quick with it. So I really haven't sat down to do kind of a, a colored pencil piece that I would spend hours on. And so I haven't been blending it with that. I've just been kind of focused on blending it with the pencils themselves. I uh, will add some details. When I talk about one of the images I did, I used pencil to kind of write in, you know, this is a male, and this is a female, and so on and so forth. I'm probably going to do that in future with the Micron, the Pigma Micron, um, probably the double zero five, which is kind of a thin one. I may go a little bit thicker, maybe to the zero five, and uh, we'll see. But I, I really like the Micron; it's archival ink, and I think it's a little bit easier to look at than the pencil, and it's much easier to scan. I think that's the problem I had with uh, in scanning the work I did with the pencil is that it uh, it doesn't scan nice. You know, the, the pencil doesn't have leave a clean line. There's a bit of variance there, and I wanted something cleaner, so. I'm going to probably move back to the Micron for the naming and the uh, the labeling, I should say, on the uh, drawings I'm doing. So just to talk about my process quickly, I will typically do a, um, a sketch with pencil. I may, and it'll be a 2B mechanical pencil, I I may, if it's, if it's a bit more of a complex piece, I'm doing one on, on Monarchs right now, and in that case, I laid it out in Procreate. I just did a quick sketch in Procreate with a few of the elements and I move them around on the page to get a sense of where the layout will be. And then I just simply redraw it in um, the sketchbook. I don't kind of trace or anything like that. It's really thick paper and I'm not doing a transfer or anything like that. I just wanted a sense of, you know, with the monarchs, where am I putting the caterpillars? Where am I putting the chrysalis? What makes the most sense? So I will do that kind of testing and procreate. It's much easier to do that for me. You know, then I'll come in, so I'll do the initial drawing in graphite, then I'll come in with either colored pencil. If I'm doing an area that's really white or very light with the colored pencil, I will pull off just with my blue tack. I will lift off the graphite. Graphite doesn't mix well with lighter colors of colored pencil, so I'll make sure to lift that off the paper before I get to that to that area. That works out well for me. If I'm doing anything with watercolor, it's kind of the same process. I will draw it out. In that case, I'll use a watercolor pencil and I'll try and match the color. I only have like eight of them. And so I'll just match the color to close to what I'm doing. 
And so if I'm doing something like a blue heron, then I'm going to use like a gray or probably a gray. If I'm doing something like a weasel that's brown, then I'll pull out the brown watercolor pencil. And that's what I'll sketch with just to give me a sense of the space. And I know that when I hit that watercolor pencil, that I'm going to get some of that brown coming in. And that's fine. So I try and avoid, um, when I'm doing a watercolor piece, I try and avoid using any uh, graphite at all and just go directly to watercolor pencil and then come in with the watercolor afterwards. So one thing I learned early on, <laughs> if you're doing this kind of stuff, either at home or in the field, is have an extra sheet of paper. Because sometimes you need to, to kind of pack it up and move. And I thought my drawing was dry when I was working in a sketchbook, and it was not. So I had this beautiful beach scene I was drawing, or painting, I should say, in watercolor, and then I was doing the shoreline on the other side of the page, and I thought it was dry. So sure it was dry, and I closed the book and I opened it up, and sitting there above the uh, the water on the left-hand side was a bunch of green <laughs> from from the opposite side of the page, so I had to turn that into clouds. So all this to say, uh, having that extra sheet of paper to kind of protect your work, whether it's graphite, colored pencil, or watercolor, is always handy. So cut an extra piece. It can be. It doesn't matter what it is, but just have that extra piece in your book to help protect your work. If you have to uh, run or whatever the case, um, or you have to leave and you don't want to wait for everything to dry, that's a really handy thing to do. So I do that in all my books now. Even with graphite, I use that piece of paper to kind of protect the work. If I, I tend to work from top left to bottom right, I'm right-handed. But sometimes I don't, and having that extra piece of paper that I can lay down on my previously drawn uh, sections helps to protect those. So now I'm going to talk about kind of the most powerful tool you'll have with regard to anything that you do when it comes to really any kind of art, but specifically around uh, nature journals, and that is your eyes, your ability to observe. And that's what I found I've learned the most in doing nature journaling, is I'm looking at the world differently. If I, I walk through a garden center on the weekend, and the first thing we're drawn to are the lovely flowers, right? And a lot of people do wonderful botanical work, and that's what they're focused on, and that's great. For me, I'm not. I'm not interested in necessarily focusing on that. I do, and I have done, botanicals, and I will do them in the future as well. But for me, I'm trying to get beyond being caught up in that initial display of color. I'm trying to look beyond it. So for me, I'm trying to look beyond that and find that secondary element, that that animal that's that's hiding behind the flower, um, you know, looking for a hole in a leaf and trying to find out what made it, or looking under the bush and finding a rabbit, or you know, I'm trying to not be distracted by that initial hit. I may come back to it, but I'm trying to look beyond it and trying to take that all in. Another good example of this is monarch caterpillars. I remember not being able to find any. And I was looking at the same plant over and over again, and I'm like, I can't see. I don't know where they are. And then I was able to spot one, and it's like my brain reprogrammed, and then I could see them all. And where I thought there were none, there was a dozen. And I just was looking. I wasn't looking correctly. I wasn't looking in a way that I was looking for the caterpillars. I think I, I don't know what it was. I think I was expecting them to be in different, loca different locations. 
and they were under leaves instead of on top of leaves, and they were really well camouflaged. And I think, you know, animals, insects are brilliant at this. And if we just take some time to look for them, we'll find them. You know, another example of this is I was in the garden center and I was, um, and they had this wonderful display of, um, it's almost like, like, a, like a, a wind fence and it had kind of a roof on the back of it. So it, it, it almost looked like a pen or something. But I noticed there was art hanging on the wall of this fence. But when I look at the top of, of this, of this, the roof of this kind of structure, which was only five feet tall, there was this beautiful lichen growing that was a bloom with these, these wonderful red colors and red and orange. And they were just shooting up towards the sun. And I wouldn't have noticed it if I wasn't looking for it. And this wasn't for sale. It was just lichen growing, but it's just, it was beautiful. So I took up my iPhone and I grabbed a bunch of pictures. And, uh, you know, you're going to be hearing my voice now, but you're going to see this come up in my Instagram feed in the next little while. Because I was just so taken aback by this little miniature world of, of uh, color and shape and texture. So I think it's, it's trying to dig for that stuff and, uh, and, and try and draw it and bring it into your work, regardless of the kind of work that you're doing now. And, you know, I think the other thing to be, to be mindful of is, is kind of the time of day and the shadows and understanding, you know, that when plants grow, they follow the sun, they reach for the sun. So that kind of movement through the day affects the light. Uh, some insects are really active in the morning and others are more active later in the day or in the evening. So being mindful that, you know, the morning is a great time, you know, catching the the sunset also works really well, but you may not find the same bugs as being, you know, being active on flowers, but you may find that some flowers bloom in the morning and others bloom later in the day. So it's just being mindful of what you're looking for and what you're trying to achieve. You don't have to necessarily rely on being able to sit in front of, and I'm trying to do that more. I'm trying to sit in front of what I'm drawing and do it live and look at a live piece because we can take in so much more information than a camera, no matter how much you're spending on it. Our eyes, our perception, uh, being able to, to look around it and understand what's causing the shadow. And, you know, can we modify that? Can we interpret it, it in a way that other people can view our work and understand what we're trying to achieve versus relying on a photograph? But that being said, use your phone to take those backup pictures. When you decide you're going to draw something, and you're going to do it in the field, take a bunch of pictures, and then start drawing. And then once you get into it, maybe halfway through it, maybe a third of the way, depending on how long you're doing this, take the phone out again and take more pictures. And that way you've got that record. And if you decide you're just going to do the sketch, and you're going to go back to your, your studio, your office, your living room, and that's where you're going to paint or color it, then having those photographs is going to be really helpful for you and you're not going to feel bound to stay there if it starts to rain or if something else happens and you have to leave. So always rely on kind of the phone for your backup. And the other thing I'll mention as well is we tend to look forward all the time. If we're walking down a path and we're looking for objects that we're going to draw or that we want to, um, to observe, we tend to always look forward. We tend not to look back from where we're coming from. And I would recommend if you're doing that to, to always kind of turn around every few feet and just look at where you came from. You may find that there is something that you walked by 
that looks much better from that angle versus the way you were coming. Or you may find that there's an animal that was sitting there, or the, the, the composition speaks to you from that direction versus the other. So some examples of some of the nature illustrations I've done recently that's really got me hooked is I did um, a piece on a bunch of bees. And so I used a bunch of drawings, or I should say, I used a bunch of photographs that I had taken for a bunch of these bees. And then I used some images from Unsplash for a couple of the others. And I really liked exploring the textures of these bees. It was really hard trying to, especially with watercolor, getting those little tiny hairs. So I used a little tiny brush to get those hairs and trying to protect the highlights and the legs. They've got black legs, but trying to protect those white areas. So I've got a bit of a reflection of light and trying to do the eyes and and the wings were so hard. It's so hard to draw a bee wing <laughs> and to suggest flight. I think I did an okay job. I'd probably do it differently next time. I always say that, right? But uh, I'm, I'm happy with the way they turned out. I did one on a flower. I didn't want to spend too much time on the flower. I was more interested in highlighting the bees in this case. So I didn't spend too much time on the flower or the... Uh, uh, the yellow flower that's up on the right, and I'll include a link to the image. It's in my Instagram. But I really, I, I enjoyed posting this. I enjoyed sharing it. So when I share, I do it through Instagram, but it is, there are a few Facebook groups. I know a lot of us don't like Facebook, but there are some really great groups around nature journaling, uh, around bees and uh, insects. So I share them there, and I think people really appreciate seeing this. And I use the hashtag Save the Bees because I felt like we weren't seeing enough bees around. It The numbers have since increased, but I really worry about them. We rely so much on these pollinators as well as butterflies. And um, it was just my way to, to kind of share what I can do, but maybe bring attention to the fact that, uh, you know, are we doing enough to protect the bees that are around us? The other piece I did was uh, a stoat, which is kind of a, like a weasel. And in Canada, these turn white in the winter. The The drawing I did, I was thinking, I, I kind of teased it to say it was going to be cute and wild. These are based off photos I took last year of a, uh, a stoat right in our backyard. And it was so curious about what I was doing. I, I grabbed a couple of photos. It was kind of looking at me. And they're just so cute. <laughs> I mean, it looks like a little ferret. But they are so cute. And I was thinking, oh, aren't you, aren't you wonderful? I took a few photos. and. It wandered in behind a, a, a pile of wood, and there, there it comes out the other side with a mouse in its mouth. And I was thinking, well, isn't that nature at work? Like, just, just seeing it kind of look cute and playful, and then being able to just walk out, and it was, it was seriously like two minutes later, it walked out with a mouse. So I don't know if it had killed it earlier, but that was the, um, the uh, painting that I did was... You know, the kind of the before and the after with a mouse in its mouth. And uh, I just, I love observing this stuff. You know, I don't know. I've not seen one. I've seen one once before here. And so I was just glad to be out there when it was obviously hunting. And uh, that was kind of fun. So that was the stoat, once again, including the link in the notes. And the last one I did, which got a lot of, um, a, a lot of attention, was the Cercropia moth. This is a bit more of an involved story, but the the basis behind this are, is is really just a series of photos I took. We were driving home, and 
going through our subdivision, we saw this big green caterpillar on the road, and we were at, you know, we had monarchs we were raising at the at the time, and it was like, wow, what is this thing? And this caterpillar was probably four inches long, and so we brought it home. We figured out it was a, a Cercropia moth, so we got some uh, silver maple, which they're supposed to like. So we got a few branches of that and put it into a butterfly a container that we had, and almost immediately it created its cocoon. And it was, it, it didn't take long. It it spun everything, and it almost looked like a it was like a husk of a cob of corn. And uh, this was, I'm going to say like August, I think, uh, as a matter of part of the summer. And it created this cocoon. And what we did is we stored it outside for the whole winter. And it gets pretty cold here. You're talking like minus 35 Celsius, um, you know, and snow and the whole bit. And we stored it outside. And in the spring, it emerged. It came out and it was incredible. It was a female, so it uh, we released it. It it flew to the wall outside of our house and just sat there. And within a few hours, a male showed up, and they mated for probably twenty four hours and then disappeared. Uh, my wife has a, a photo and a video of me sitting there because it was raining and I was worried about them, so I had an umbrella and I was sheltering them from the rain as they were just sitting there uh, connected on the wall of our house. It's a bit silly, but, uh, you know, we take nature pretty seriously. And what's interesting is, you know, this female is going to go off and, and or went off and laid her eggs, but neither of these have mouths. So a Cercropia moth, when it when it is in the moth stage, does not have a mouth. It only lives for about 10 days. It is It emerges, it mates, and then it dies. So it was so interesting to learn about this. I had no idea that they're born without mouths, so they can't eat, which means they die. And uh, it was just wonderful. I mean, this is, I think, you know, this kind of curiosity about nature is, is what makes nature journaling so special and so special to me and being able to leverage kind of what I've been playing with and what I've been learning from all these wonderful guests I've had on the show has allowed me to kind of explore the way that I nature journal, which may be different than the way you do it. And there's no wrong way to do it, but I thought it would be great to kind of share what I've been doing. So in the next few weeks, I'm going to be going back to that same garden center. I'm going to be probably drawing some flowers, some more bugs, (laughs) some more insects. I'm going to be looking for butterflies and moths and grasshoppers. And I'm also going to be going to that car graveyard. So I'm going to be drawing some cars as well. And uh, I've got some live draws coming up with uh, a few artists as well. So we're going to be exploring some things there too. So I'm excited. I'm, I'm looking forward to this opportunity in the summer to kind of spread my wings, take some time off, and devote some time to my art, which is obviously very different than my day job as a, a software developer. So, you know, I can't not include homework. So this was a bit challenging because I there's been so much wonderful homework recently from... Uh, some of my recent guests. And uh, so I thought this would be a little bit different in that I want you to tell a garden story in a single image. You know, find a location in your garden, someone else's or online, and think about something that's happened there and try and portray it through something you're drawing. 
It could be graphite, it could be watercolor, it could be colored pencil, it could be digital. But think about a scene that may have happened there and try and build a story for that. I'd love to see what you can think about. Like, go out and look and, and see, like, it, you know, this leaf is bent and there's a hole in it. Was there a fight here? What was fighting? It doesn't have to be photorealistic. It could be characters that Pixar would have released. What I'm hoping to do is is to have you curious about what's happening in the garden when you're not there and trying to understand what could happen and then moving that even into the fictional bits. And so um, I think that we can use this for inspiration in if we want to do something accurate with regard to scientific illustration. But if you're looking at uh, you know a children's book or just having some fun, it's all around you and looking for those ants and those grasshoppers um, or if you want to stick to botanicals and finding those flowers and, and understanding what they're doing and how they're growing, I think that kind of exercise would be really helpful, regardless of what you're doing. If you're an oil painter, I think just this power of observation is something that we can always work on. And I know I'm not great at it. I'm better than I was, but I'm looking forward to the day when I'll be even better than I am now. So I'm trying to balance the observation with the skill and the technique in uh, trying to create my art, and I'm hopeful that you're doing the same with the wonderful pieces of art that you can create. And I encourage you to tag me or share it with me directly. You can find links for me through uh, the links in the show at just mikehendley.com. I have a Discord as well for the show, so you're welcome to post your material there too. So I'm really anxious to see what you can create. And as always, you know, the show notes including links to everything I spoke about, can be found at drawinginspiration.fm slash 58. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, share, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. This will help surface it for others to enjoy. So thank you once again for joining me this week. Be kind to yourself and each other, and keep drawing. Theme music for this podcast is Acid Jazz, provided by Kevin McLeod.